Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we will continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and a reflection that will have us uh, spending quite a bit of time into that principle of conscience. Conscience, uh, a very important word today, certainly in a uh, post-Freudian world, a word that we need to re-examine and spend some time with, as Paul certainly spends some time with, not only in chapter 8, but also in chapter 10. So we're going to lay some foundation there. But before we get into that, I do want to speak to something I talked about yesterday, and it has uh, come up in conversation. You know, yesterday evening I was talking about how what we do (laughs) matters as it relates to how we live in the world, right? And the observation was made, why can't religion be a private matter? My friends, everything that we do involves people, right? I mean, yeah, our faith is a private matter to the extent that we go mano y mano with God in our relationship with God. Yeah, it's very important that uh, we take time out of our very busy schedules to be with God. But even then, is that private? <laughs> private in a sense where, yeah, people might not be around, but you're still with God. So when I say nothing we do in the world is a private matter, we have to appreciate something here. Every time we go into the workplace, every time we go to our job, we live in community, right? And what we do impacts the person to the left and the right and collectively the larger marketplace, huh? I mean, maybe you're a CEO of a business. Every decision that you make is going to impact everyone underneath you. There isn't any one decision that you make that isn't going to impact everyone underneath you. And I'm not talking about whether you're going to go to McDonald's or Subway. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about decisions that are very specific to your job, to your corporation. And conversely, the people underneath you. There isn't one decision that your employee makes that isn't going to impact your workplace because everything that we do impacts someone around us. Now here we can also apply this to the sporting arena. You know that I grew up playing various sports. I probably spent most of my time playing the game of basketball. There isn't anything that I did on the court that did not impact everyone on the court, right? If I did what I was supposed to do on the court, then the other four players would be better around me. If I didn't do what I was supposed to do on the court, then the team would suffer as a whole. Maybe we're running an offense and I'm out of place. Everyone else on the team is expecting me to be at a certain place on the court. If I'm not there, then we can't run the offense. And consequently, the team suffers. Maybe you play soccer and you're a back defender. If you're not in the right place, your other teammates will know that you were out of place. Why? Because that means the forward, the striker, is probably going to score and you're going to be down. 
You see, my friends, there isn't anything that we do that does not touch the people around us. I can never reinforce that enough. And so, yeah, we have to take stock in what has been entrusted to us. Yes, in the world, but really going back to what I said yesterday evening, in the spiritual life, we are a body, huh? Maybe you're the right hand of the body or the left hand or the the right leg or the left leg. Whatever role you have in the body of Christ, embrace that role. Become who you are. What does St. Catherine of Siena say? (laughs) Become who you are called to be, and then you can set the world on fire. Become that person who God has called you to be, and then you can set the world on fire. And then people will be able to identify the body of Christ more. Huh? Because in so many ways, it is in discovering who we are as created in the image and likeness of God and how we are called to live out, live out our vocation that the body of Christ begins to shine. Have you ever found yourself just fascinated by when a, a team works together? Here I'm thinking of um, synchronized swimming. Uh, synchronized swimming. We're touching upon a lot of different sports <laughs> this evening. huh? I love to see synchronized swimming, just to see that synchronicity of a swimming team working together. And man, when they get it right, it is something to marvel at. You just want to stand up and applaud. Take that image to the body of Christ. When the body of Christ is working together, and each and every son and daughter of God are doing what God is calling them to do, the world will marvel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to become the person who God is calling us to be so that the world might marvel. So that the world might marvel. So yes, be assured, our Christian Catholic faith is never a private matter because it defines who we are and how we live, how we go about our day, how we bear the joy of Christ wherever we go. This is quintessential to divine revelation. In God for other, receive the gift of God so that we might better understand the task that God has put before us. We come to know him so as to make him known. We enter into the interior life that we might better understand the external world around us. We go one-on-one with God that we might better understand our role in the body of Christ, mindful that our faith is never a private matter. And for you who believe that it is a private matter, I would challenge you with a question. Is that because you are too concerned about offending someone? Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ offended a lot of people. Now we go about in our days, being as Paul reminds us, gentle, reverent, kind, these spiritual fruits, but not at the cost of losing truth. We must always bear witness to truth. And there is a way of doing it, but a way of doing it nonetheless. And offending someone isn't always the worst thing. Challenging someone isn't always the worst thing. You've heard me say it before. Challenges are good things and can be the best things. Why? Because what does that word mean, challenge? From the Latin provocatio, to call forth, to call out, we have challenges before us. 
each and every day that God might call us out to become the person who God has called us to be. So sometimes, sometimes, my friends, we are called to poke and to prod in gentleness and reverence so that the person who we are encountering actually might be called out and in the end for the greater glory of God, okay? And on the flip side, if we are doing something wrong, we have to receive that challenge. We have to receive that poking and prodding if and when it is necessary that we too might become the person who God has called us to be. It's a reciprocal thing, huh? What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48? Be perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect. Brothers and sisters, we are never going to attain perfection, as it were, this side of the heavenly Jerusalem. What Jesus is talking about there is this call we have to constantly convert, that gradual transformation of Christ. Then, and only then, will we begin to understand what the Christian vocation is all about. It never stops. It never stops. So we have to be willing to both reprove and accept a reproval, huh? Okay, with that, let us get into Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth, chapter 8. I will go ahead and read. I know we started to get into verses 7 and 8. I'll go ahead and read verses 7 to 13. 7 to 13. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through being until now accustomed to idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Only take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, a man of knowledge, at table in an idol's temple, might he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak man is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of my brother's falling, I will never eat meat lest I cause my brother to fall. All right, so here we have uh, Paul using this word conscience on three separate occasions. The Greek there is synyad esis, synyad esis. He uses it up to uh, 20 times, 20 times, including eight times in this chapter and chapter 10. Synyad esis is a word that speaks to the faculty by which we judge something to be right or wrong. I think the best definition that we have on conscience comes from a Vatican II document, Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 16. Listen to this definition on conscience. Deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey. Its voice, ever calling him to love and to do what is good and to avoid evil, sounds in his heart at the right moment. For man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. And this is his conscience, okay? 
Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 16, concludes, His conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. I love that definition there. Uh, Peter Kraft, a man you have heard me quote a great deal, says, Conscience is to good and evil what sight is to color. Conscience is to good and evil what sight is to color. So essentially, conscience is that law that allows us to distinguish one thing from another thing. Therefore, conscience is at the heart of the moral life, is it not? And we could also say at the heart of any good discernment. What does it mean to discern something? Well, discerne is to separate, to distinguish, to come to understand, literally speaking. So, if you are coming to understand, separating, distinguishing the right from the wrong, your discernment is listening to your what? Conscience. Conscience. Okay, that law that is inscribed upon the heart. Now, Peter Kraft continues, it is the power of the soul that gives us awareness of the moral dimension, the goodness or evil of the human acts. And here, there's a very important point made And I think this is where today's secular world gets confused. And this is, again, Peter Kreft. The moral importance of the mind becomes obvious once it is understood that conscience is an intellectual power. It is essentially a power of knowing, not feeling. Okay, feeling sometimes is associated with conscience, but it is not one and the same thing. You see, so to know that an act is morally obligatory, morally forbidden, or neither is morally obligatory or morally forbidden, is not the same as to feel it per se. You know, the example has been given writing a book or or writing an article. You finish writing and you just get that intuition, that feeling that, you know what, this is a good piece. I really feel good about this piece. As someone who blogs and someone who writes, I can attest to this feeling for sure. You're done writing something and you just feel good about it. Or you're done writing and you're just not so sure. Or you look at your piece and you thought, gosh, you know what? I thought I was talking about this thing, but as I read this, it doesn't come off right. And I don't get a good feeling about it. You see what I just said? I don't get a good feeling about it. It's that intuition. And so what do you do? You go back. That's different than conscience, especially as we define it as a way of knowing. And it is especially different, my friends, because conscience is that moral principle that places us in the presence of God. Why do we feel good when we live morally upright? Because we are living in the presence of God. And why does guilt and shame overwhelm us when we do something wrong? Because we know we are no longer living in the presence of God as we ought. We don't feel guilty or shameful when we write a bad piece or we're still working out on a, on a piece that we're writing. No. Or no, nor do we feel so good about a piece in the same way that we feel good about living morally upright and living in the presence of God. You see, again, There is a distinction between knowing and feeling. And this is widely important because, like I said off the top, in a post-Freudian world, (laughs) 
right? We can easily confuse these two things. You know, we say, oh gosh, conscience is, is nothing more than a teacher who is in my right ear telling me to do something, or maybe my, my mother's voice, or, or maybe a, a friend who was speaking to me 15 years ago about this or that. Some inner voice from someone who we know very well. No, 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 that's not what our conscience is all about. Certainly, those relationships and how those relationships have encouraged us to live morally upright, yeah, those can play an important part, especially as memory is a very important faculty of the soul. But don't confuse that with conscience. Conscience is that law that is inscribed upon our heart that allows us to distinguish right from wrong and consequently encourages us to live in the presence of God. Conscience, that faculty which allows us to see right from wrong. Incidentally, my friends, how do we define prudence? But a pronouncement of a formed conscience, okay? So it's, it's just not enough to talk about conscience as if it's already formed, right? Certainly, yeah, the law is inscribed upon our heart insofar as we are sons and daughters of God and created in the image and likeness of God. God created our heart, right? Like anything, if we don't work it out within the context of better understanding God and divine revelation, then it is an uninformed conscience. And the more we sin, the more we will dull our conscience. Okay, so we have the duty, right, and the responsibility to work out our conscience, if you will. You know, we go to the gym, and we work out. Why? Because we hope that our muscles might expand. Well, we need to work out our heart by studying and praying that our heart might actually begin to expand. I think we touched upon that yesterday evening, did we not? We need to work out our heart that it might actually expand, to pray, to study, and to live out what we pray and study. Because we should also say this, that the more we live in God, live in His corporal and spiritual works of mercy, will our heart not only expand because we are loving as God calls us to love, but also we will become more sensitive. Our Christian sensibilities will be much stronger. Okay, so forming our conscience according to the law of God, that that law that is inscribed upon our heart may flex its muscle. Very important. All right, let us go back now to some of these verses and continue to apply what we're talking about to what Paul is saying. Everything that I have said about conscience very much applies to my opening monologue, right? Because the whole point for Paul is, hey, <laughs> when you who are mature in Christ sin, you weaken others around you. You weaken the conscience of those around you. So to get to the heart of what this evening is about and to bring our two monologues together really is to say this, if we convert and we have a formed conscience and we still choose to sin, that is scandalous. And what does Paul say here? It weakens your brother who is not mature. This is why those who have a formed conscience 
are very much called to continue to grow, that we might encourage others to not only grow in the Christian life, but in so doing, encourage them to grow in their conscience. If, if we fail in this area, we weaken conscience, right? The more we form our conscience, the stronger Christians and Catholics we will be. And the stronger Christians and Catholics that we will be, the more we will encourage others around us to become who God is calling them to be. It is not our responsibility necessarily to form them and study. Maybe it is, maybe they come to you, but at the very least, what we are called to do is to encourage them. If those who are formed in the Christian Catholic faith, if those who are formed in divine revelation lead other people to scandal because of their frivolous behavior, then that, my friends, is a dangerous thing, a very dangerous thing because it can impact them in a negative way. And that's what I was speaking to uh, from the outset. We have to appreciate how we influence other people. Right or wrong, right or wrong, I know there might be people out there that say, it's not my job to influence other people. Well, no matter how much we don't think we influence people, we do. You know, who was it? Charles Barkley, who once said, it's not my job to behave like someone's idol. Okay, that's fine, Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley being the famous NBA all-star, right? Uh, NBA Hall of Famer. But the fact of the matter is, you were an NBA superstar, and a lot of people idolize you. Charles Barkley said that by his own admission, because he didn't want to have to live a certain way. But the fact of the matter is, people were looking up to him, and he had to behave a certain way. He didn't want to. So he said, I was an NBA superstar, and not all NBA superstars have to be idols. Well, that's just not reality. And we have to appreciate reality here. And by reality, I mean what is definitively so and what is not definitively so. We can carry on as much as we want about what something is not. I mean, Charles Barkley can carry on all he wants about how he thinks he's not an idol. But the reality is, he is. And so it's just appreciating reality and how God calls us into his light and his love. And this should not be something daunting to us, by the way. This should actually be a challenge we embrace and one that should spur us on, really. That we actually, by the grace of God, have the power to influence other people. All is grace. All belongs to God. But he uses us as, what does Paul say? Earthen vessels to build up the kingdom of God. So we have to embrace uh, reality for what it is and not get caught up in what we arbitrarily think about this and that. But root ourselves in the truth, the truth in this case of how we influence people, okay? All right, just looking at these verses here. Verse 10, might he not be encouraged? Literally, uh, might he not be built up? Presumably here, some in Corinth ate in public temples because they hoped to build up weaker Christians by demonstrating that idle food was harmless. But kind of in the lines of what we've been talking about, Paul rebukes them with sarcasm <laughs> that eating idle food will not build up the weak to spiritual maturity. It will build them up to violate their conscience and fall into sin. So what Paul is doing there is, yeah, we might be building someone up, but not in the way we want to build them up. 
Here, what Paul is speaking to is that principle of what you feed grows. Virtue begets more virtue, yes, but vice begets more vice. The more you fall into a particular sin and don't do anything about it, well, the more you will fall into that particular sin. Just as the more you live a virtuous life, the more you will live a virtuous life. The principle of what you feed grows is at the heart of the Christian and Catholic life because it, it really brings us into the essence of God. What do I mean? Well, how have we talked about love before? If you want more love, give love away. The more love you give away, the more you have emptied yourself, and the more room you have made for God to fill you up with more of His love, right? You want more of something in the Christian and Catholic life, give it away. The more joy we give, the more love we give, the more virtue we give, the more we empty ourselves, and then the more God can fill us back up again. But if we are hoarding, if we are holding on to things, if we are living in sin, all is full. If we haven't emptied ourselves up, there's no room for God to fill us back up again, right? So what you feed grows, okay? And we have to be present to this truth, certainly within larger construct and uh, framework, context that we have been talking about. Brothers and sisters, it is about playing our role, huh? And not only giving glory to God in doing it and playing our role, but always mindful that we belong to the body of Christ. Mindful that what our neighbor is doing matters and that we have a role to play. And so we take stock in our conscience, that interior voice. Oh, by the way, my friends, by way of postscript to this reflection this evening, what is that verse that comes to us in the narrative of Elijah? He heard God in a tiny whispering voice, that voice of the conscience, a voice that can only be heard in the silence. Cardinal Newman once said that the conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ. I love that phrase, the aboriginal vicar of Christ. That is to say, the first voice that speaks to the soul. So we have to quiet ourselves, entering into the classroom of silence so that we might hear God in that tiny whispering voice saying, go over here, go over there. Say yes, say no. Love this person, love that person. Listen to that voice that we might give glory to God. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening. Indeed, a gift, a gift that you have given us to just spend time reflecting into your word, divine revelation, that we might become the person that you are calling us to be in all that we do, anywhere and everywhere, all the time you call us forth. You call us forth to bring your love to the world. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.